grandeur in conception, and has painted some superb portraits, notably the one of Walter Crane. Orchardson 1835 is more of a painter, pure and simple, than any of his contemporaries, and is a knowing if somewhat mannered colorist. Erskine Nicole 1825, Thought 1826, Calderon 1833, Bob 1834 1905, Frederick Walker 1840-1875, Stanhope Forbes, Stott of Old Amending Portraiture Hole 1845-1890 and her calmer may be mentioned. Landscape and Marine Painters In the Department of Landscape there are many painters in England of contemporary importance. The Capcole 1833-1893 had considerable exaggerated reputation as a depictor of sunsets and twilights. Cecil Lawson 1851-1882 gave promise of great accomplishment, and lived long enough to do some excellent work in the style of the French Rousseau. Mingled with an influence from Gainsborough, Alfred Parsons is a little hard and precise in his work, but one of the best of the living men, and W. L. Willie is a painter of more than average merit. In Marine's Hook 1819 belongs to the older school, and is not entirely satisfactory. The most modern and the best sea painter in England is Henry Moore 1831-1895, a man who paints well and gives the large feeling of the ocean with fine color qualities. Some other men of Mark are Clausen, Brangwin, Ulis, Steer, Bell, Swan, Mittigert, Sir George Reed, Modern Scotch School, there is at the present time a school of art in Scotland that seems to have little or no affinity with the contemporary school of England. Its painters are more akin to the Dutch and the French and in their coloring resemble, in depth and quality, the work of Delacroix. Much of their art is far enough removed from the actual appearance of nature, but it is strong in the sentiment of color and in decorative effect. The school is represented by such men as James Guthrie, E.A. Walton, James Hamilton, George Henry, E.A. Hornell, Lavery, Melville, Crawwell, Rochie, Lawson, McBride, Morton, Reed Murray, Spence, Patterson, Principal Works, English art cannot be seen to advantage, outside of England, in the Metropolitan Museum, NY and in private collections like that of Mr. William H. Fuller in New York. There are some good examples of the older men Reynolds, Constable, Gensborough, and their contemporaries. In the Louvre there are some indifferent constables and some good Bonington's. In England the best collection is in the National Gallery, next to this the South Kensington Museum for constable sketches, elsewhere the Glasgow, Edinburgh. Liverpool, Windsor Galleries, and the private collections of the late Sir Richard Wallace, the Duke of Westminster, and others. Turner is well represented in the National Gallery, though his oils have suffered through time and the use of fugitive pigments. For the living men, their work may be seen in the yearly exhibitions at the Royal Academy and elsewhere. There are comparatively few English pictures in America. Chapter XX. American Painting. Books Recommended. American Art Review. Amory. Life of Coplay, The Art Review, Benjamin, Contemporary Art in America, Century Magazine, Catherine, American Painters, Clement and Hutton, Artists of the 19th Century, Cummings, Historic Annals of the National Academy of Design, Downs, Boston Painters in Atlantic Monthly Volume 62, Dunlap, Arts of Design in United States, Flag, Life and Letters of Washington Halston, Galt, Life of West, Isham, History of American Painting, Knowlton, W.M. Hunt, Lester, The Artists of America, Mason, Life and Works of Gilbert Stuart, Parkins, Copley, Scribner's Magazine, Sheldon, American Painters, Tuckerman, Book of the Artists, Van Dyke, 
Art for Art's Sake, Van Rensselaer. Six Portraits, Where. Lectures on Holston, White. A Sketch of Chester A. Harding. American Art, It is hardly possible to predicate much about the environment as it affects art in America. The result of the climate, the temperament, and the mixture of nations in the production or non-production of painting in America cannot be accurately computed at this early stage of history. One thing only is certain, and that island that the building of a new commonwealth out of primeval nature does not call for the production of art in the early periods of development. The first centuries in the history of America were devoted to securing the necessities of life. The energies of the time were of a practical nature, and art as an indigenous product was hardly known. After the revolution, and indeed before it, a hybrid portraiture, largely borrowed from England, began to appear and after 1825 there was an attempt at landscape painting, but painting as an art worthy of very serious consideration, came in only with the sudden growth in wealth and taste following the War of the Rebellion and the Centennial Exhibition of 1876. The best of American art dates from about 1878, though during the earlier years there were painters of note who cannot be passed over and mentioned. The early painters, the glimmer, or the man who could draw and color a portrait, seems to have existed very early in American history. Smedworth 1684-1751, a Scotch painter, who settled in Boston, and Watson 1685-1768, another Scotchman, who settled in New Jersey, were of this class men capable of giving a likeness, but little more. They were followed by English painters of even less consequence. Then came Copley 1737-1815 and West 1738-1820 with whom painting in America really began. They were good men for their time, but it must be borne in mind that the times for art were not at all favorable. West was a man about whom all the infant prodigy tales have been told, but he never grew to be a great artist. He was ambitious beyond his power, indulged in theatrical composition, was hot in color, and never was at ease in handling the brush. Most of his life was passed in England, where he had a vogue, was elected president of the Royal Academy and became practically a British painter. Copley was more of an American than West, and more of a painter. Some of his portraits are exceptionally fine, and his figure pieces, like Charles I demanding the five members of House of Commons are excellent in color and composition. CWPL 1741-1827, a pupil of both Copley and West, was perhaps more fortunate in having celebrated characters like Washington for sitters than in his art. Trumbull 1756-1843 preserved on canvas the revolutionary history of America and, all told, did it very well. Some of his compositions, portraits, and miniature heads in the Yale Art School at New Haven are drawn and painted in a masterful manner and are as valuable for their art as for the incidents which they portray. Gilbert Stuart 1755-1828 was the best portrait painter of all the early men and his work holds very high rank even in the schools of today. He was one of the first in American art history to show skillful accuracy of the brush, a good knowledge of color, and some artistic sense of dignity and carriage in the sitter. He was not always a good draftsman, and he had a manner of laying on pure colors without blending them that sometimes produced sharpness in modeling, but as a general rule he painted a portrait with force and with truth. He was a pupil of Alexander, a Scotchman and afterward an assistant to a West. He settled in Boston, and during his life painted most of the great men of his time, including Washington. Vanderlyn 1776-1852 met with adversity all his life long, and perhaps never expressed himself fully. 
He was a pupil of Stuart, studied in Paris and Italy, and his associations with Aaron Burr made him quite as famous as his pictures. Washington Halston 1779-1843 was a painter whom the Bostonians have ranked high in their art history, but he hardly deserved such position. Intellectually he was a man of lofty and poetic aspirations, but as an artist he never had the painter's sense or the painter's skill. He was an aspiration rather than a consummation. He cherished notions about ideals, dealt in imaginative allegories, and failed to observe the pictorial character of the world about him. As a result of this, and poor artistic training, his art had too little basis on nature, though it was very often satisfactory as decoration. Rembrandt Field 1787-1860, like his father, was a painter of Washington portraits of mediocre quality. Jarvis 1780-1834 and Sully 1783-1872 were both British-born, but their work belongs here in America, where most of their days were spent. Sully could paint a very good portrait occasionally, though he always inclined toward the weak and the sentimental, especially in his portraits of women. Leslie 1794-1859 and Newton 1795-1835 were Americans, but, like West and Copley, they belong in their art more to England than to America. In all the early American painting the British influence may be traced, with sometimes an inclination to follow Italy in large compositions. The middle period in American art dates from 1825 to about 1878. During that time, something distinctly American began to appear in the landscape work of Doughty 1793-1856 and Thomas Cole 1801-1848. Both men were substantially self-taught. Though Cole received some instruction from a portrait painter named Stein, Cole during his life was famous for his Hudson River landscapes, and for two series of pictures called The Voyage of Life and The Course of Empire. The latter were really epic poems upon canvas, done with much blare of color and literary explanation in the title. His best work was in pure landscape, which he pictured with considerable accuracy in drawing, though it was faulty in lighting and gaudy in coloring. Brilliant autumn scenes were his favorite subjects. His work had the merit of originality and, moreover, it must be remembered that Cole was one of the beginners in American landscape art. Duran 1796-1886 was an engraver until 1835, when he began painting portraits, and afterward developed landscape with considerable power. He was usually simple in subject and realistic in treatment, with not so much insistence upon brilliant color as some of his contemporaries. Comset 1818-1872 was a follower in landscape of the so-called Hudson River School of Coal and others, though he studied seven years in Europe. His color was rather warm, his air hazy, and the general effect of his landscape that of a dreamy autumn day with poetic suggestions. F.E. Church 1826 was a pupil of Coal, and has followed him in seeking the grand and the startling in mountain scenery. With Church should be mentioned a number of artists Hubbard 1817-1888. Hill 1829, Bierstadt 1830, Thomas Moran 1837 who had achieved reputation by canvases of the Rocky Mountains and other expansive scenes. Some other painters of smaller canvases belong in point of time, and also in spirit, with the Hudson River landscapists painters, too, of considerable merit, as David Johnson 1827, Bristol 1826, Sanford Gifford 1823-1880. Medenti 1828-1891, and Wittredge 1820, the last two very good portrayers of autumn scenes, A.H. Wyant 1836-1892.
one of the best and strongest of the American landscapists, Bradford 1830-1892 and W.T. Richards 1833, the marine painters, portrait, history, and genre painters, contemporary with the early landscapists were a number of figure painters, most of them self-taught, or taught badly by foreign or native artists, and yet men who produced creditable work. Chester Harding 1792-1866 was one of the early portrait painters of the century who achieved enough celebrity in Boston to be the subject of what was called the Harding Craze. Elliot 1812-1868 was a pupil of Trumbull, and a man of considerable reputation, as was also in the 1801-1846, a portrait and genre painter with a smooth, detailed brush. Page 1811-1885, Baker 1821-1880. Huntington 1816, the third president of the Academy of Design, Healy 1808, a portrait painter of more than average excellence, Mount 1807-1868, one of the earliest of American genre painters, were all men of note in this middle period, Lutze 1816-1868 was a German by birth but an American by adoption, who painted many large historical scenes of the American Revolution, such as Washington crossing the Delaware besides many scenes taken from European history. He was a pupil of Lessing at Dusseldorf, and had something to do with introducing Dusseldorf methods into America. He was a painter of ability, if at times hot in color and dry in handling. Occasionally he did a fine portrait, like the Seward in the Union League Club, New York. During this period, in addition to the influence of Dusseldorf and Rome upon American art, there came the influence of French art with Hicks 1823-1890 and Hunt 1824-1879, both of them pupils of Couture at Paris, and Hunt also of Millet at Barbizon. Hunt was the real introducer of Millet and the Barbizon fond and blow artists to the American people. In 1855 he established himself at Boston, had a large number of pupils, and met with great success as a teacher. He was a painter of ability but perhaps his greatest influence was as a teacher and an instructor in what was good art as distinguished from what was false and meretricious. He certainly was the first painter in America who taught Catholicity of taste, truth and sincerity in art, and art in the artist rather than in the subject. Contemporary with Hunt lived George Fuller 1820-1884, a unique man in American art for the sentiment he conveyed in his pictures by means of color and atmosphere. Though never proficient in the grammar of art he managed by blendings of color to suggest certain sentiments regarding light and air that had been rightly esteemed poetic. The third period in American art began immediately after the Centennial Exhibition at Philadelphia in 1876. Undoubtedly the display of art, both foreign and domestic, at that time, together with the national prosperity and great growth of the United States had much to do with stimulating activity in painting. Many young men at the beginning of this period went to Europe to study in the studios at Munich, and later on at Paris. Before 1880 some of them had returned to the United States, bringing with them knowledge of the technical side of art, which they immediately began to give out to many pupils. Gradually the influence of the young men from Munich and Paris spread. The Art Students League, founded in 1875, was incorporated in 1878 and the Society of American Artists was established in the same year. Societies and painters began to spring up all over the country, and as a result there is in the United States today an artist body technically as well trained and in spirit as progressive as in almost any country of Europe. The late influence shown in painting has been largely a French influence, 
and the American artists have been accused from time to time of echoing French methods. The accusation is true in part. Paris is the center of all art teaching today, and the Americans, in common with the European nations, accept French methods, not because they are French, but because they are the best extant, in subjects and motives. However, the American school is as original as any school can be in this cosmopolitan age. Portrait, figure, and genre painters 1878-1894, it must not be inferred that the painters now prominent in American art are all young men schooled since 1876. On the contrary, some of the best of them are men past middle life who began painting long before 1876, and have by dint of observation and prolonged study continued with the modern spirit. For example, Winslow Homer 1836 is one of the strongest and most original of all the American artists, a man who never had the advantage of the highest technical training, yet possesses a feeling for color, a dash and verve in execution, an originality in subject, and an individuality of conception that are unsurpassed. Eastman Johnson 1824 is one of the older portrait and figure painters who stands among the younger generations without jostling because he has in measure kept himself informed with modern thought and method. He is a good, conservative painter, possessed of taste, judgment, and technical ability. Elihu Vedder 1836 is more of a draftsman than a brushman. His color sense is not acute nor his handling free, but he has an imagination which, if somewhat more literary than pictorial, is nevertheless very effective. John Lafarge 1835 and Albert Ryder 1847 are both colorists and Lafarge in artistic feeling is a man of much power. Almost all of his pictures have fine decorative quality in line and color and are thoroughly pictorial. The young men, so-called, though some of them are now on toward middle life, are perhaps more facile in brushwork and better trained draftsmen than those we have just mentioned. They have cultivated vivacity of style and cleverness in statement, frequently at the expense of the larger qualities of art. Sergeant 1856 Island perhaps the most considerable portrait painter now living, a man of abounded resources technically and fine natural abilities. He is draftsman, colorist, brushman in fact, almost everything in art that can be cultivated. His taste is not yet mature, and he is just now given to dashing effects that are more clever than permanent, but that he is a master in portraiture has already been abundantly demonstrated. Chase 1849 is also an exceptionally good portrait painter and he handles the genre subject with brilliant color and a swift, sure brush. In brushwork he is exceedingly clever, and is an excellent technician in almost every respect. Not always profound in matter he generally manages to be entertaining in method. Bloom 1857 is well known to magazine readers through many black and white illustrations. He is also a painter of genre subjects taken from many lands, and handles his brush with brilliancy and force. Doing 1851 is a painter with a refined sense not only in form but in color. His pictures are usually small, but exquisite in delicacy and decorative charm. The year 1849 is fond of large canvases, a man of earnestness, sincerity, and imagination, but not a good draftsman, not a good colorist, and a rather clumsy brushman. He has, however, something to say, and in a large sense is an artist of uncommon ability. Cumyon Cox 1856 is a draftsman, with a strong command of line and taste in its arrangement. He is not a strong colorist, though in recent work he has shown a new departure in this feature that promises well. He renders the nude with power, and is fond of the allegorical subject. 
The number of good portrait painters at present working in America is quite large, and mention can be made of but a few in addition to those already spoken of Lockwood, McClure Hamilton, Tarbell, Beckwith, Benson, Vinton. In figure and genre painting the list of really good painters could be drawn out indefinitely, and again mention must be confined to a few only, like Simmons, Sherlaw, Smedley, Brush, Millet, Hassam, Reed, Wiles, Mowbray, Reinhardt, Blashfield, Metcalf, Lowe, C. White Turner, Henry. Most of the men whose names are given above are resident in America, but, in addition, there is a large contingent of young men, American-born but resident abroad, who can hardly be claimed by the American school, and yet belong to it as much as to any school. They are cosmopolitan in their art, and reside in Paris, Munich, London, or elsewhere, as the spirit moves them. Sergeant, the portrait painter, really belongs to this group, as does also Whistler 1834, one of the most artistic of all the moderns. Whistler was long resident in London, but has now removed to Paris. He belongs to no school, and such art as he produces is peculiarly his own. Say the leaven of influences from Velasquez and the Japanese. His art is the perfection of delicacy, both in color and in line, apparently very sketchy. It is in reality the maximum of effect with the minimum of display. It has the pictorial charm of mystery and suggestiveness, and the technical effect of light, air, and space. There is nothing better produced in modern painting than his present work, and in earlier years he painted portraits like that of his mother, which are justly ranked as great art. E. A. Abbey 1852 is better known by his pen and ink work than by his paintings, howbeit he has done good work in color. He is resident in England. In Paris there are many American-born painters, who really belong more with the French school than the American. Bridgman is an example, and Dannett, Alexander Harrison, Hitchcock, Medwayne, Melchers, Pierce, Julius Stewart, Weeks 1849-1903, J.W. Alexander, Walter Gay, Sergeant Kendall had nothing distinctly American about their art. It is semi-cosmopolitan with a leaning toward French methods. There are also some American-born painters at Munich, like C.F. Ulrich, Shannon is in London and Coleman in Italy, Landscape and Marine Painters, 1878-1894, in the Department of Landscape America has had since 1825 something distinctly national, and has at this day, in recent years the Impressionist Plain Air School of France has influenced many painters, and the prismatic landscape is quite as frequently seen in American exhibitions as in the Paris salons, but American landscape art rather dates ahead of French Impressionism. The strongest landscapist of our times, George Ennis 1825, is not a young man except in his artistic aspirations. His style has undergone many changes, yet still remains distinctly individual. He has always been an experimenter and an uneven painter, at times doing work of wonderful force, and then again falling into a weakness, the solidity of nature, the mass and bulk of landscape. He has shown with a power second to none. He is fond of the sentiment of nature's light, air, and color, and has put it forth more in his later than in his earlier canvases, at his best. He is one of the first of the American landscapists, among his contemporaries Wyant already mentioned, Swain Gifford, Coleman, Gay, Shirtleff, had all done excellent work and influenced by foreign schools of today. Homer Martin's landscapes, from their breadth of treatment, are popularly considered rather indifferent work, but in reality they are excellent in color and poetic feeling. The young men, again, in landscape as in the figure, are working in the modern spirit. 
though in substance they are based on the traditions of the older American landscape school, there has been much achievement, and there is still greater promise in such landscapists as Trion, Platt, Murphy, Dirth, Crane, Dewey, Coffin, Horatio Walker, Jonas Lye. Among those who favor the so-called impressionistic view are Weir, Trotman, and Robinson, three landscape painters of undeniable power. In Marines Kedney Bunce has portrayed many Venetian scenes of charming color tone, and De Haas has long been known as a sea painter of some power. Quartley, who died young, was brilliant in color and broadly realistic. The present marine painters are Maynard, Snell, Wren, Butler, Chapman. Principal works, the works of the early American painters are to be seen principally in the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, the Athenium, Boston Muse, Mass, Hist, Sock. Harvard College, Redwood Library, Newport, Metropolitan Muse, Lenox and Hist, Sock, Libraries, The City Hall, Century Club, Chamber of Commerce, National Acad, of Design, NY in New Haven, at Yale School of Fine Arts, in Philadelphia at Penna, Acad, of Fine Arts, in Rochester Powers's Art Gal in Washington Corcoran Gal and the Capitol. The works of the younger men are seen in the exhibitions held from year to year at the Academy of Design, the Society of American Artists, NY in Philadelphia, Chicago, Boston, and elsewhere throughout the country. Some of their works belong to permanent institutions like the Metropolitan Muse, the Pennsylvania Acad, the Art Institute of Chicago, but there is no public collection of pictures that represents American art as a whole. Mr. T.B. Clark, of New York had perhaps as complete a collection of paintings by contemporary American artists as anyone. Postscript. Scattering schools and influences in art. In this brief history of painting it has been necessary to omit some countries and some painters that have not seemed to be directly connected with the progress or development of painting in the Western world. The arts of China and Japan, while well worthy of careful chronicling, are somewhat removed from the arts of the other nations and from our study. Moreover, they are so positively decorative that they should be treated under the head of decoration, though it is not to be denied that they are also realistically expressive. Portugal has had some history in the art of painting, but it is slight and so bound up with Spanish and Flemish influences that its men do not stand out as a distinct school. This is true in measure of Russian painting. The early influences with it were Byzantine through the Greek church. In late years what has been produced favors the Parisian or German schools. In Denmark and Scandinavia there has recently come to the front a remarkable school of highlight painters, based on Parisian methods, that threatens to outrival Paris itself. The work of such men as Cruyer, Zorn, Peterson, Lilgefers, Faulo, Jork, Tagerstream, is as startling in its realism as it is brilliant in its color. The pictures in the Scandinavian section of the Paris Exposition of 1889 were a revelation of new strength from the north and this has been somewhat increased by the Scandinavian pictures at the World's Fair in 1893. It is impossible to predict what will be the outcome of this northern art, nor what will be the result of the recent movement here in America. All that can be said is that the tide seems to be setting westward and northward, though Paris has been the center of art for many years, and will doubtless continue to be the center for many years to come.